Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with your hosts, Jake and Randy, discussing all things freestyle frisbee and whatever else that comes up. Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. Hey, Randy, how's it going? Hey, Jake, I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. Fabulous. Uh, I uh, wanted to um, bring up the stats for the live stream during FPA 2017. So we had over 500 people engaged with the live stream on finals day. So that is by far our biggest uh, number. And we're hoping to grow that in 2018. Definitely. I mean, I wish I could tell exactly who was watching, but I know people are out there watching who aren't necessarily Frisbee players. Like I know that my aunts are watching and I've heard feedback from other people that their moms are watching or their families are watching. Uh, It's really cool that we can take this show that is usually just people who are on site and sort of bring it to the rest of the world. I think we're growing the circle bring in people from the outside and make them a part of this family. I would say that there were more people watching on the stream than there actually were watching there in person. So that's pretty exciting that we're, like you say, expanding that circle. Yeah, totally. Uh, So what do we have on the docket for today, Randy? Well, we are going to continue our conversation with Stacy McCarthy and Carolyn Hubbard. And Stacy's going to start us off here talking about what it was like to make a living playing freestyle Frisbee. So here we go. Having a plan and executing it just looks much more professional. And we were trying to make this a professional sport. I mean, at that point in time, we were looking at this as, can this be a professional sport? Can we make a living at this? That's interesting. A lot of folks that we've been talking to from that time have all had that point of view is that they were trying to make a living at this. And we're talking to the Velasquez brothers. They're like, we're trying to make a show because we're trying to get paid. Mm-hmm. And when we're talking to Donnie Rhodes and he has that same thing and Jeff Elberbaum and, you know, and so it's interesting to hear you guys echoing that exact same thing. Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, it was, it was early enough and it was, we were at this point where, you know, the Rose Bowl stuff was going on. It was just, it was a big time. And if you could put together I mean, this was back in the day of the gong show and stuff, right? Like there was some some crazy things going on. And if you could make a living throwing your Frisbee, oh, my God, it's like that was the ultimate, right? To get paid for this thing that you loved. And so you had to make it look professional. The more professional you could make it look, the more options you had. And if you didn't have that, you weren't going to get work at, at places, right? Right. I think also I'll throw in Stacy and I kind of had this precedent and we, we did have that pressure every time we went to a major tournament, um, there was this expectation. So each year we tried to up our game and smooth it out and be better than we were. So we, we really couldn't just wing it and free flow, you know? So we put that on ourselves because we wanted to improve and keep going. And and the other women that were in the sport, um, as far as supporting and stuff, it, it helped, I think, them maybe inspire other women coming in. Um, although, looking back, you know, at, at tournaments, it wasn't very conducive to uh, teaching other women. You just didn't have that time. You didn't really have that time to just, like, really help someone out. Um, or they couldn't maybe, like, hey, how do you throw this throw? And... 
What do you do when this happens with this spin at that angle? Things like that, technical things. Competitions tend to bring out a different side of people sometimes. So it wasn't, I guess I'm just trying to say, it wasn't always easy to share what we knew. So what other women did you connect with during that time, other jammers? I know you mentioned Margaret Curtis and G. Rose. Who were some of the other women at that time? Kate Dow, um, Connie. Is that Connie Bond? Yeah, Connie Bond. um, Connie Bond was just playing at jammers. Yeah, I noticed that. She, uh, She played with Larry in mixed pairs or open pairs or something. That was awesome. Yeah, I would say, um, you know, Mandy Carrero. Um, yeah, Mandy and Amy and Brenda, uh, Suzanne, Gina. Gina was big. Suzanne Strait was back then. Yeah, and Judy Robbins was Judy. Who else? So I know we're forgetting people. There was Carla, Carla Cheshire. Carla, yes, yes. Uh, for uh, me, Mary, Mary Lowry, of course. Mary was there and Bethany Sanchez. I mean, quite honestly, Carolyn and I were initially, there was not many women because Mary came a few years, quite a few years later. Carolyn was 79. I was like 81, 82. This was like really early where there, there really weren't many women. For me, um, when I met, well, I didn't really meet Suzanne Strait and Jane. They came to Colorado and they came to a tournament in Boulder and Colorado Springs. That was the first time I had seen Suzanne play. And I was like starstruck. I, I couldn't believe it. And I, I was just so immediately drawn. But at the same time, it's so intimidated. Like I, I couldn't even talk to her. I was so shy about it. <laughs> and they she truly like sparked something in me and uh their routine and but they were also kind of fading out a little bit at that time they were maybe peaking in 81 so and i was just getting started when i was coming in carolyn i remember they because i only saw suzanne play like once or twice and they were just kind of departing as i was coming in right with it. And that's why I was saying Mary seemed like further down the road, like Kate yeah. and Connie, they did a routine to David Bowie's uh, Space Odyssey, I think it is. Yeah, that was the Rose Bowl routine, right? Yeah, it's, and I'll never forget, I thought it was the most beautiful, I think we beat them in it, but it was the first time that I saw them there, and I thought, oh my God, the two of them were so amazing. I mean, they were, I, I idolized them. Uh, yeah. Because they were fav- they were favored to win, I think, yeah. and we were kind of the underdogs. Maybe they knew me a little bit, but not Stacy's. I had played in one tournament before Santa Cruz in '83. I had literally played in a Fort Collins local tournament, and we went to Santa Cruz and played. And I, I didn't know anybody. I mean, this was my first mm-hmm. trip. I'm completely. I don't have any idea what's going on. And and Carolyn and I ended up winning the world championship. And then the next year in 84, they had these big posters of us. Oh, gosh. Airbrushed, gorgeous posters, which we trade back and forth every 20 years because I had it framed. But it, <laughs> it is yeah, an awesome we have poster. One. It's an awesome poster. And they were all over Santa Cruz. And we come back that next year. And I'm like, holy smokes. But I'd only been playing like a year. But as I said, I had like my little moves that I could do. <laughs> it was a small repertoire, but it's what I could do at that at that time. You have to execute, and, and the thing that I was 
good at, at at those early days is because I was, you know, I'd been used to competition. I'd been used to competing that psychologically I could fire myself up to compete. Um, I, you know, I certainly, I, I don't, I was, I think Connie and Kate were much better. Uh, you know, their talent at that point, uh, and their experience was way, way better. I know than I was, yes. but they didn't necessarily execute under the competition. You know, sometimes you could see their routine. Like I'd look at it on the side. I'm like, oh my God, they're amazing. But, but you have to execute, execute when you're being judged because that's the time that counts. So I think freestyle Frisbee is a huge head trip because you can be the best jamming at the park or at Green Lake or wherever you are. You can, you can be the most spectacular jammer, but if you can't execute when there's a line of judges in front of you and you don't know what's going to happen and you can't maintain your composure during that, you're not going to win tournaments. Tournaments aren't for everybody, you know, and there's always been a big mm-hmm. debate about that is, you know, is this more of a creative um, thing or is this a competition thing? And I think both are right, but yeah. you do have to be able to compete in front of judges. And when anything is subjective, like the sport of freestyle Frisbee, subjectiveness comes into play. Yep. Jamming and competing are different things. And that debate rages on today. It, it doesn't stop. You mentioned the gong show. I was thinking that could be the excellent judging system. It gong. Could. No, forget artistic impression and execution. Yeah. One gong, you're out. Until you're gonged. Yeah. We didn't like your music and we didn't like wearing. Gong. Gong. <laughs> Uh, well, I digress. Um, but yeah, you know, managing those four, four or five minutes is really, it's a skill. And the folks that can do it are the ones that are usually more successful at competing because we've definitely seen folks who, I, I'm using quotes here, more talented, but they just didn't know how to manage the four or five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And there were, there were, when it comes to women, I mean, there's a, there's some women's routines that really stand out. One of them was Kate and Connie. And and it was that song, um, ground control by David Bowie. It just came to me. That, that stood out for me. It's so beautiful. And the other one, Carolyn, who did the Prince song, little red Corvette at us open Gina and Mandy. Yes, I think it might have been Gina and Mandy. That routine really stood out for me because as, as women, the difference between the women and men, we took time to like pick out our outfits a little bit more. Not that the guys didn't like the Coloradicals always did that too, but the women, like I remember that little red Corvette routine and they did some like red bow in their hair and it was just, it was such a woman's routine. And I thought that's, that's a great routine. And um, just the little, that, that part of it really stood out the difference between the men and the women's division. And I wish we could have, grown women more to to have more of that to have more of the pieces of the puzzle of um you know everything from how you put the music together how you put your routine together how you put the outfits together the whole package is really what carol and i looked at early on is i I mean i remember us playing if we were going to play to bob marley we wore reggae outfits. We wore <laughs> reggae shirts. We wore, I mean, we tried to really be the image of what we were playing to and embrace the whole thing as a, as a whole presentation. Yeah. Maggie Curtis and G Rose were mindful of that too. Yes. Oh yeah. G Rose was another, another amazing woman influence. She was awesome. And then, you know, further down the line, as we got out of the eighties into the nineties, you know, 
Amy, Amy Beckin has inspired so many people. She's a current world champion as we speak yeah. right now. And it's yes. unbelievable in her fifties. I mean, so, yeah. you know, she and she and Dave Schiller both, I mean, the two of them have done so much for the sport and, you know, they need major kudos. So, yeah. So didn't you both play with Amy and did you both win world yes. titles with Amy? Is that true? It's true. Yes. Yes. It's true. Wow. I, the last, uh, actually tournament 2011, uh, I think that was Wifted. Uh, Amy and I have won. That was my official last tournament that I competed in with Amy. And she is such a machine and nothing shakes her. You know, she's just kind of like Stacy in that way that, you know, she's just focused. She's on point. She's meticulous. She is a planner. And you just know when you're with Amy, it's like, okay, this is all business and uh, good things are going to happen. Yes, yeah, she, the, the way I ended up with Amy is when Carolyn, so Carolyn had been my partner forever and had never played with another woman. And Carolyn got pregnant with Zach, with her oldest. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, great. Who am I going to compete with? Carolyn's prego. And Amy had just <laughs> moved to San Diego. And Amy was still pretty new to freestyle. She, you know, she was an overall player, but she was still pretty new to freestyle there wasn't any women here to play with. And so I said, Amy, do you want to be my partner for the, you know, the summer tour and stuff? And so Amy and I started playing together and I was still in the hopes of freestyle was going to be my business, right? That this is how it's going to make a living. And, and so at that point we developed something called the California girls and we actually had great success with that. We traveled all over the world. We, we lived in Australia for a while teaching. We had sponsors, we were in Japan, you know, we, we did any show we could, we did a, you know, warm up for a bikini contest in Mexico. We, you know, we had some crazy things that we did, but again, we were trying to make freestyle much bigger than it, it currently was to look at it more than just a toy or a game, but that's something that you can make a living at. And, uh, and we had great, and we worked really hard. We looked, worked at the marketing of it and, you know, the sponsorship of it, the whole, the whole package. So, and then, I started to have a family and all of that. And then Carolyn and Amy, <laughs> it's a small, <laughs> when you only have so many women to choose from, it's, uh, you know, you have to, you, we're swapping back and forth. <laughs> yeah, we right, share. Right. Stacy, you, <laughs> you need to tell the story of what Amy said to you at US Open. The first time she met you or came up to you, she said something like, I'm going to come back and beat you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amy was very like in her early days, she was hardcore competitor and, and Carolyn and I had a target on our back. I mean, everybody wanted to beat us. We'd been at the top for a long time and I can't remember exactly what she said, but it was something to that. Like, I'm going to beat you one day or, you know, and, um, Watch out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that was just, and I think at that point it's like, well, rather than competing against her, why don't I just have her join in? <laughs> Just come on and join in. I won't have to compete against you. And, and we'll, we, you know, we'll connect and thrive rather than compete and survive because there's not enough women for that. <laughs> well, this, this may be a, a good time to dovetail into this conversation because, Carolyn, you would put a post up on Facebook mentioning how it was there was this sport that is mainly it is predominantly male. And what was it like to be a woman in this environment? And 
I would love to kind of hear your thoughts on that and maybe have you dive into that a little deeper. So if, if you could, that would be great. Sure. Um, I think what had happened was, uh, someone posted, I think Tommy Leitner posted our 1984 FPA tournament in Minnesota. We got a lot of kudos and love and praise and which is all good. But I was thinking back in that time, how we were newbies and, just trying to figure it all out. And honestly, as women, we are, we are kind of isolated because of the fact that there is such this learning curve with freestyle. I mean, I think I would say it took me a good three years before I felt even comfortable competing because I just felt like my basic knowledge and structure and uh, body movements and um, what I could do was so limited. I still kind of feel that way. Like I'm, my physicality is, is limited. I can only do so many things with the disc. So Stacy and I, we we didn't have like a coach. You know, even though Stacy said it was great not having a coach and telling you what to do, I kind of felt like it was harder because we didn't have a mentor. We didn't have a woman to go to to kind of talk about things or learn from um we were just on our own and i think that it's other women players don't have the fortitude to stick with it because they are it's disappointing or it's like they can't get over the hump to learn uh to throw better i think the number one thing that i see nowadays in modern freestyle and watching the women is they don't have consistent throws so that's just gonna like deteriorate everything or uh, cause the level of play to stay at a certain level and not elevate. Um, so for us as women in the sport of that time, you know, we were pretty much in the shadows of the Coloradicals. I, in a way, um, they got so much attention and good for them. I mean, they were breaking the ground and setting new standards and, getting all these incredible gigs and really shining and Stacy and I, that was great for us, but it was just harder. I, th I think, um, it was, there were some difficult parts to it because we were kind of alone and there was only a few times that you could, you know, meet other women who are competing at the Salem. Like Maggie, I think she was the one, one player that w lived in California who came to Colorado and spent like a summer and we jammed and we played and we went to the Grateful Dead concerts, blah, blah, blah. And it was like another woman that I could relate to and spend time with and play with. So those were really rare times. So I guess in the early eighties, it just, it seemed that we were on our own learning and we had good results and we had good luck. Um, and then as the sport grew, Things changed a little bit, but we were always first. Women were always first to play. And I'm not, like, complaining or anything. It's just that freestyle format has a certain, you know, format that you stick to every single tournament, every single time. And women were always first at, like, you know, 11 o'clock. Nobody's there. <laughs> and, you know, the highlight of the show was later in the day when, um, you know, open or co-op was happening. Um, sometimes that was a little frustrating, to be honest. 
but I would have to interject that that's just because of the sport. It's because there were not enough women, you know, and, and it, it wouldn't make sense otherwise. And we were, I mean, as pioneers, we're really looking at, you know, growing the sport into something bigger than it was. And if you would have put the women last um, and you put something else at the beginning when the bigger crowds, you know, weren't there, it wouldn't have grown the sport. And I, I, I think the hard thing for for everyone, for women, and, and the reason they didn't stick with it is because there wasn't enough women. And the only women early on that I saw that were really, would stick it out, it's because somehow they had a relationship with a Frisbee guy. For me, personally, I thought mixed pairs was so much more exciting to watch as an event because you had the yin and yang and the beauty of what women just move differently. And even though they're not as technical, people want to see women perform. They want to see them ex you know, get out on that stage, no matter what level. I think the audience appreciates that, that they are trying and they're giving it their all. I think we all see that effort having mixed pairs kind of float up more toward the top of open, you know, on that same level, it, it made for exciting results. Well, and I, I agree because, you know, my point that a lot of, a lot of women who continued on, continued on because they had a, you know, an involvement or a relationship with, you know, a guy in Frisbee, but, you know, then there was like Gina, Gina and John Hout that came together. Right. And had that, you know, such a beautiful mixed pairs routine. And that yes. I think, you know, and I can't speak for Gina, but I mean, that's what then perpetuated her into playing more women's divisions and stuff. But it was really her, that routine with John, you know, got her really fired up. I think of, you know, playing with more women and so mixed pairs did help grow the sport, I would say, to get more women in it. And maybe that's something for the future is that, you know, focusing more on mixed pairs routines and getting more women involved with it that way. When did mixed first come on to the competitive scene? When did, when, when did that happen? I think there was mixed pairs in Santa Cruz, like 82, I believe, because I think I, Doug and I played in Santa Cruz. So I think mixed pairs was part of the freestyle event early on. Um, I don't. I don't think it was that big of a deal. It was kind of like women's first mixed pairs open co-op was kind of the sequence. Because um, mixed definitely evolved into a, a bigger event than because it was like not yeah. part of the Rose Bowl. It was not part of the earlier days, but it has now become definitely a mainstream event. Yeah. Yeah. It's one yeah. of my favorite, for sure. Mine too. And the routines are, you know, they have something different than open division or, or women's division or even co-op. There's just something great about the mixed pairs routine. Wow. So that was really interesting to hear them talk about mixed pairs and how much of an influence it has and uh, also talking about when it actually started. So I was curious to see uh, when it actually started and I went and looked. Uh, there's a place on Shred Now and also on freestyle-brisbee.com that has all of their tournament results from FPA Worlds. And it looks like in 1980, there was a mixed pairs division. So that's when it started. Uh, and it looks like the very first FPA Worlds was in 1979. So that's pretty cool. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Well, I'd say mixed pairs has a long history in FPA Worlds. So it's it's been there pretty much since the beginning. Yes, mixed pairs is one of my favorite events as well. Uh, also, I want to let everyone know that we have our first non-human 
on the wall of gurus on frisbeeguru.com. We have Bob Bolware's dog, Russell, who is helping support Frisbee Guru. That's so awesome. Uh, so if you want to be on the wall of gurus too, all you have to do is go up to frisbeeguru.com and buy a shirt. All the shirt sales go to supporting our mission, go to supporting the website, the live stream, and this podcast. So please go buy a shirt and give us your support. Yes. And Jake, I will talk to you next time. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. To contact us or for more info, check us out at frisbeeguru.com.